Hi there, my name is Mohamed and I'm the host of the Reconfigured Podcast, a show that explores the intersection of technology, culture, and society. We bring professionals to talk about their extended experience or discuss about a specific topic that might interest the audience. All of our episodes are available for free with no cost to the general public. So welcome to the show. Today I'm with Patrick. Patrick, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, so my name is Patrick. I'm a software engineer by trade. I design and build products for a number of corporate uh, companies like Microsoft and Skype. Uh, although Skype was a big startup at the time. Uh, and then I moved on to work for startups and finally started my own uh, back in 2018. Uh, worked on it for four years until we sort of were at a stage where uh, we were thinking about raising more money and we ended up selling to um, an American startup in the space of sleep. And um, yeah, I moved on and, and still iterating and, and, and working on my own projects and helping other entrepreneurs and founders as well. So you're currently working on a company called Peak. Would you like to talk about Peak and what will they offer? Yeah, so I think the thesis is around the idea that, you know, a lot of us believe we should be healthier. We should be trying to improve uh, how we feel on a daily basis, how productive we are thanks to our health and how it's performing, but also look at how that health quality can be maintained in the long term. How do we make sure that we're basically 70, 80, 90, and we can still run with our grandchildren or great-grandchildren, maybe. And we can all find examples in our families of people who have lived with that quality of life and people who haven't. And often we say that even the generation of our parents is sort of living with a poorer quality of life than our grandparents. And so I think the question is, how do we sort of improve on that and, and make sure that we can all uh, live with the best quality of life for as long as possible? So it's not technically longevity but it's, it's that aspect of things. So if you think about it, it takes a lot of things. It takes prevention. We sort of have a, a lot of ideas now and a little bit more science on what to do. What do we do to get there? But it's still hard to do it. And the reason is motivation. It's finding what works for you. I'm not going to do the same thing that you do. I'm going to have to figure out how the 10 things that are really going to make a difference for me to prevent and to have a better quality of life now and in the future how do I do these things in a way that works for my work style, my lifestyle, my family life, and all these, th these things? The people that, that do this the best often are the coaches. They sort of help you navigate those things and iterate until you can find um, you know, a way to implement all of these habits that's sustainable for you. So one of the things I've always believed in is you know, the power of coaching. That's one of the things that you can see in my previous startup. Peak is going to be really around uh, coaching for sports specifically. That's my thesis now with my co-founder, because I've realized that everyone who's going on that journey is not necessarily only improving their nutrition and their sleep and all these other aspects of their health for the purpose of being healthy. It's often accompanied by something that has to do with physical exercise. You're starting a new sport or there's a sport you really love and you want to go further, you want to start competing maybe, or playing with friends and doing other things. And so it's that research of improvement that leads people to be interested in the data that sort of drives whether you're making a your progress or you're not making progress on a certain area of your health or your sleep. And so we're designing pick around sports specifically for that reason to start with. And endurance sports are the most interesting uh, 
segment for us. The reason is that if you look at a lot of the markers that you need to dial in to be healthy and have great endurance, those things completely align. VO2 max, so your breathing capacity, great for endurance, also great for longevity. That's the thing that, quality, that correlates sorry, with the highest quality of life in the future. Same thing goes with your heart rate. If you can maintain a resting heart rate that's low, that means that you're a good athlete, so you have that physical performance, but it also means that in the long run, you're in the always the optimal range for your age, and you can maintain that over time as well. So all these things really align for us, and we felt also that the audience of people who practice endurance sports, but not necessarily as athletes, the runners, the people who do marathons, triathlons, so cycling, swimming, rowing, all of these other sports really care about the data within the sport and the data of their health and how that, that impacts their physical performance. So that's sort of uh, the, 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 the general thesis. What Peak does is essentially an all-in-one training platform that takes the data out of all the wearables and the devices you have on your health and your fitness and helps you navigate uh, your training plan. And so that, go, that goes, um, that starts for us with the coach. The coach needs to be able to see that data to uh, action the data. Today, there's no platform that uses AI to do this. So it takes a lot of time for a coach to look at all the data in charts and numbers and averages, and to be able to figure out and interpret the data to give you some advice. That entire process could be done like 80% via the AI today. And to the extent that the coach will just read a dashboard and will say, these are the top things that are top movers in the data, the metrics that are uh, important for you. Um, and so, you know, I'm going to give you this advice. I'm going to update your training plan in that way. I'm going to send some insights on how we could potentially improve your training plan. On the consumer side, we just need better UIs. Like the stuff that we have out there is like companies that have started in 1999. They haven't really done a big update on the UI. So there's a lot of things that, you know, you, we can improve on that side. But also for the user, the, the big uh, problem is you find a lot of plans they're very generic. They don't necessarily apply to you, your biology, your genetics. And so what you want is someone that helps you personalize that plan. Again, that's something that's really, um, that's heavy lifting for a coach to do completely manually. But the AI can do a lot today for, for those coaches and help essentially get maximum personalization for the same cost that we had before uh, thanks to the software. So that's, that's sort of what we're trying to deliver is more personalization. So you know, when you feel tired on a Sunday and you can't adhere to that plan, that literally a three-month plan that was defined for your marathon, we're going to change that plan dynamically with AI. So the coach just has to review to inform the changes, and then everything is sort of up to date um, on your side. So let me just get this into perspective. So let's say for an example, I want to train for a marathon. Yeah. And I would take, let's say, data from my Apple Watch as an example. And I would put it on the platform. It will tell me, let's say, my VO2 max and everything that I've done regarding this. And the trainer will come up and see the data that I've generated, let's say, from, example, one month of training. And he will assess what I'm doing. The trainer is assigned to me specifically, or it can be any trainer that has the data on the platform. Any trainer. It doesn't have to be a trainer on the platform. So if you're already working for a coach with a coach for running, we can bring that coach on board. So they can simply use the software um, and, and, and use, use that with you, basically. So it's, it's really operating as a platform, not necessarily imposing which coaches can work with you. Um, 
And we can also match you with coaches if you don't have one. If you're not interested in a coach, that's not something we're going to do in the next six to 12 months. But next year, we definitely want to start with a more... Uh, so if you go to platforms that exist today, you can get training plans. You can even find them on Google. So it's basically going to be either a PDF or an app that has a set training plan for a beginner that wants to run their first marathon or that wants to start running and do 5K for the first time. And you can start on that plan. Problem is, again, like you're not, you, there's no personalization in it. It doesn't take into account how much, um, you know, progress you're making in the first days. And that tells you a lot about what the person is able to do. If the person has already been running, the historical data should inform how that plan should be tailored on day one. So all of these things will essentially be done for you uh, in the future, at least, uh, even if you don't have a coach. And the idea is to have something that uh, is more accessible for a lot of people who, you know, they run on a day basis. They probably want to improve. Maybe they don't want to run a marathon, but they still want to improve at their at the sports that they really enjoy. But they are not going to go for a coach because, you know, even for the first marathon, it's not something necessarily they're trying to achieve. But is it targeting athletes who already been, let's say, working out, or let's say if I'm an, a person who's starting out or an amateur, who let's say, for an example, I want to start a marathon. I don't have any that much training of a marathon, but I want to start it. Is it aimed toward, let's say, people like me, or let's say someone who's a seasonal marathoner who wants to get the data that he wants? Definitely not the not only at least the seasoned athletes, but the person who's already um, actively practicing one of these sports. Um, so if you're already running, if, even if you don't have the goal of running a marathon, but you're actively running, you're interested, uh, you aspire to be faster, to run longer. If you have any of these fitness-related goals, that's something we can help with. I'm going to move to a different question, which is before becoming a director of product at 8sleep, you were also the CEO of a company called Span, which got acquired by 8sleep. Can you talk about the story on how Span started till it got acquired? Yeah, that's a, a pretty long one. Um, we started um, very interestingly. So... I finished working for Microsoft in 2016, um, had been working there for three years. It was basically my first job out of university. So I was working at a desk for the first time for three years. It's it's a great company. You know, it's like Google or any of these big tech companies. There's a lot of food uh, in the office. And, you know, I wasn't necessarily paying attention to how much I was eating, what I was eating and at what time in the day. I was still like playing tennis and being like, I was pretty active physically. I just didn't realize that that wasn't enough. My health was definitely trending in the wrong direction. I had two signals. The first one is we were lucky to have a, a nurse that came to the office and did like a free checkup whenever you wanted. She did it, and that was my first signal. Like my cholesterol was high, my glucose was high, and she was like, oh, "Okay, it's not too bad. You know, there's nothing you should do, but it is, you know, on the borderline high side." And in my mind, I was like, "Okay, I understand what you're saying, but..." Should I not be worried about that? Should I not be trying to optimize that? So I'm really like in the optimal range and I'm maintaining uh, my numbers there for a long time. So I, I essentially prevent things. And I wasn't, that, that's when I discovered that it wasn't how things are done. We just wait until you get to the range where your glucose is in the diabetic range before we do anything. There's maybe the only sort of preventative thing we do is we created an artificial number. Uh, an, an artificial range be, before diabetes 
that we call the pre-diabetes range. It's not a medical condition. It doesn't have symptoms necessarily associated with that. But we created it to sort of warn people. And when they come to the doctor's office, say, you have this precondition, essentially, and you probably want to try and focus on that. But again, we don't give you the tools, the recommendations to do it. So I went on my own journey. Uh, I bought this ring here, an Aura ring that measures your sleep. I bought an Apple Watch. I started using CGMs. I'm actually wearing one just now. Um, and I essentially started monitoring a lot of different aspects of my biology. It really helped me understand what will be uh, essentially the impact of your lifestyle. Nutrition, exercise, sleep hygiene, mental fitness and stress maybe during meetings sometimes. And so all of that data uh, you know, really gave me the, the understanding that a lot more people should be doing that, but not to the same extent maybe because you know, no one is going to buy all of these devices and try all of this. So at SPAN, we thought that the people who, and that's going to be interesting for the story, but the people who would need the most this type of solution where you speak on a platform with a coach that's matched with you based on what you're trying to improve in your health and the data that you may have or that we can provide to you by giving you a device would be the people who have um, symptoms, who have problems that they want to solve. So people who are pre-diabetic, people who have uh, women who have PCOS, um, any sort of uh, symptom linked to crashing after lunch, you know, so really feeling tired, um, or same, similarly after breakfast around 11. So all these sort of symptoms, that there's literally a collection of them uh, under the umbrella of metabolic syndrome, but there's also a lot of uh, other types of symptoms that are related to your lifestyle. So we targeted those people, and we thought they needed the most. We spent probably six months on that. Then we pivoted and we said, okay, it's not working because we're not able to get these people to pay out of pocket. So we're going to start targeting businesses that have a population that's uh, sort of in that age range where they are more prone to these symptoms. We're going to try and sell to these businesses, including so public insurance systems, private insurance, uh, and corporates that have an interest in self-insuring themselves on certain areas of um, their employees' health. We spent six months on that. COVID hit. We had three pilots running and we were like, okay, there is, it took us six weeks post lockdown, the first lockdown, to realize that we were not going to complete these pilots, that everything was on hold and was, I mean, essentially we had no visibility. It could have gone on for six months, a year, two, three. We, we had no idea. Uh, the second thing was we had only eight months of uh, runway in the bank. And the last thing is, unfortunately, we had a lot of customers using the free app with all the content that doesn't cost us anything in terms of operational work. And so we thought, let's double down on these guys. And what we did is installed, in, uh, installed a, a, a paywall. We started with that right away. We, I think people paid $15 or $20 a month. And we lost, uh, I think we had, we had literally 10,000 users on the free app at the time. We lost everyone. We literally kept. 20 or 30 people. There was so much of a difference between the people who were willing to pay out of pocket for something like this compared to the audience we were targeting. We spent another six months, so now we're like 18 months since foundation, and we were slowly going. We literally went from that moment where we had nothing, we started getting some customers that were paying, to maybe 100, 150, paying $20 a month. 
I spoke to a couple of advisors on the weekend. I was sort of explaining where we are, the fact that it's, it's quite hard to sell. We have to do a lot of marketing. We paid influencers sometimes $500 for an Instagram post, and we got like five people signing up. So it wasn't worth it, but there was no way that in the long term, the price of their subscription would pay off the, the investment. Um, so the unit economics didn't align. And at this point, we, we spoke to the advisors and we were sort of trying to find out uh, what to do. One of them was really clever, had a lot of experience in the space and told us, you have to look into how much people are willing to pay before you sort of uh, show them a solution. And his um, idea was, you're probably underpricing what you're doing. So you're giving a lot of value for like 15 to $20 a month. And he said, I'm 100% sure that the people that you're targeting right now and some of the ones that are already paying are spending a lot more on their health and fitness. You should ask them that question. He didn't tell us like, do this or do that. He just asked that question. I probably spent over the course of January, 2021, um, three weeks uh, asking, you know, getting everyone on a call, uh, everyone who was paying, asking them, how much are you paying today for other services or products for your health? Gym memberships, health coaches, genetic tests, blood tests, anything you can imagine that's sort of related to health and fitness. People were telling me like, we're giving you numbers anywhere between $150 to sometimes like $500 to $1,000 that they had spent on these things. And that's when I realized, and with the entire team, that we were way underpriced. That affected, obviously, how much money we can make, but also the perception of our product. Psychologically, people thought, this is only $15 or $20. It's too cheap to be the thing that I want because I want something more premium that's like has all the features and can cover many areas with my coach being involved and engaged. And I sort of knew and perceived that for $20 a month, they weren't going to get that and they weren't signing up as a result. So we were hitting the wrong target population at that price point. The thing we did on a weekend uh, in March 2021, we 10 the price. We went from $20 to $149 a month and then shortly after $200 a month. I spoke to five customers over the weekend. Four of them signed up right away on the call. So we had almost 80% conversion or a little bit more at the time on that weekend. I think that's where that's when things clicked for us. From that day to literally six months later, instead of like trying hard to get from 100 to $500 of monthly revenue, we literally went to $5,000 of monthly revenue, paying everyone's salary. And you know, I think it was a lot easier to sell to these people. We knew exactly who the audience was. We had found the alignment between people who are seeking this sort of high quality of life and have the data as well. So they already had an Apple Watch, an O-ring, the blood test that they had done, a 23andMe DNA test, any sort of like combination of these types of data, data points. And so we were just connecting that to the platform and helping the coach uh, interpret the data and sort of help them define what recommendations they could use. And it sort of led us naturally into what the product was at the end, which was really around self-experimentation, the idea that we're all taking supplements or hearing on a podcast that we should do this for our health, like a cold shower, for example, we actually have no idea if it's working for us. When we're working for the 10 people speaking about it on the podcast and, and commenting on that, that video, but it might not be working for us. And so the idea was, can we measure your baseline? Tell you, let's start today. How many times have you done it in, in the following two weeks? And you know, is, actually, is it actually working? If we're targeting a lower heart rates or better recovery, 
can we measure that with some of the numbers and actually see if before and after was better? And if that's the case, then we can, we can also assess your supplements and aspects of your nutrition, sleep hygiene, and all these things. In the end, you're going to say, I mean, a lot of people are going to say it's not super scientific, but we didn't really care because the end point was if you're improving, you know, even if it's one of the two or three things that we provided, you made, you made an improvement. And we, go, we can always fine tune in long term. But it was enough of a, an experimentation process that people were making progress and knew why they were making progress. So people really loved that in the experience. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much how we, how we got to the product of Span. And it led to the acquiring of the company? Yeah. So in uh, a year later, in March uh, or February, March uh, 2022, we were trying to raise a Series A. Um, I was speaking to investors. We had this great angel that came on board, Jason Calacanis. We started pitching um, a lot of people in, um, you know, in the Valley mostly, or in the US at least. Um, we had really good traction, but at the same time, the market was sort of uh, slowing down. I think a lot of investors were telling us that, a lot of my friends who were founders were telling us that, advisors or people in the program we were doing with uh, Jason Calacanis. And so we, we were still raising, but we took an opportunity. Uh, the CEO of ACP reached out and he said, um, I'd really love to have a chat about you. I thought you wanted to do a partnership. That's, that's what we wanted with all of these companies, you know. With, uh, with Apple is a long shot, but we were trying with the Oura Ring, with Whoopstrap, with Aisley, because they're much smaller uh, tracking devices companies. Um, and we knew we could sort of try and, and set up a small partnership at the very least. And they had the exact target user we wanted. We spoke to the CEO of Aisley, had a conversation around um, how we can best essentially provide value to them because at this point we were so small that it's more about how we can provide value to them and to their customers. So the pitch was, can we provide coaching to your users? You can even like integrate that in your app and show that you have this coaching service. Um, and we, we do it as a co-marketing relationship. So uh, ideally we also bring back users to you. We bring back data if that's something that you're interested in um, to, to sort of improve your insights and a lot of aspects of their software. And he came back to us, I think, uh, three days later and said, uh, everything you pitch is great, but let's do the same thing as an acquisition. So you become the service component of our company and our products uh, suite. And you sort of operate that for it, both from a you know, software perspective, what can we integrate in the existing core product? And also as a standalone product for coaching that can work with the A-Sleep devices, but also with other devices which was a great opportunity for them also to expand their customer base to people who didn't have any sleep and maybe over time convert them. And so, yeah, we, we, we thought about it with my co-founder and had a discussion and I think we, we went for it in the end. Uh, a lot of details behind that, but that's, that's essentially how we, come, we came to, to selling the company um, and, and working for them for about a year. I just want to ask about when you said that when you priced, let's say for 15 or $20, and then you asked your customers how much they're paying and they told you, let's say from 150 till 500. And you increase the price on the application to let's say an X specific point, let's say $500. Were you providing the same service that you were providing when you were at 15 or there were some extra additional stuff that the customer came up and said, okay, now it's 
worth for me. Okay, this justifies the $500 per month. Same features, different level of engagement, maybe from the coach. So you already had a coach messaging you on the platform. Obviously, at that price point now, we were able to do calls with you. So the coach will actually onboard you on a call, sort of explain how the experience is going to do, is going to work, personalize that even further. If your data was connected prior to the call, and then um, you know after three or six months, you could have a, a follow-up uh, session that's sort of in-depth. We, my co-founder was a, a medical doctor who loves like health, performance, longevity, and so he was doing calls at the beginning with all of our users. So we added this sort of human element and increased that engagement because we knew that users really, um, you know, they valued that. And so we sort of increased that, but that feature was already there. It's just that we increase the level of engagement we provide it to our users. And as someone who has his business acquired, did the experience shape your perspective on entrepreneurship and product development in general? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, you know, um, one of the, the great things about building a startup from scratch uh, as a first-time founder is that you learned a ton of things on building the product and pitching to customers so like pricing and psychology and things like that at least for for consumer products i'm, I'm sure for b2b products it's similar you just you learn more about how organizations of different sizes and shapes uh, operate and how you sell into them but for consumer i think that that was um, something that uh, i learned really fast i have no idea what other approaches I could have taken in my life to learn as much in such a short amount of time. So I think that's, that's the great thing about it. But I also think that you learn a lot from um, other aspects of building a business, like, you know, hiring people. That's a big thing. I think, you know, made a couple of mistakes, hired the wrong, the wrong people and hired the right people at the wrong time as well. And different things like that. And so that sort of, judgment that intuition of when is the right time to do certain things that only comes with the experience and so i think that that's one of the main things that going forward for this new business and in the future i would do differently or i would think about these experiences and anecdotes you don't want to be too biased by your own experience so if something bad happened you don't want to make it a rule that you're never going to do the same thing but i think it's sort of a it's a proxy or heuristic for you to say okay, if we take this framework and the situation is relatively similar, we should probably evaluate the situation in the same way as when this happened. Um, doesn't mean you're going to take the same decision. Um, doesn't mean you're going to take a different decision either. But um, I think it's, imp it's important to sort of reuse all of that knowledge. I'm going to move to a different question, which is as you're working on Peak, along with previously being a product director at Eight Sleep and your previous work on Span, would you, you have a deep understanding on health and fitness technology, the industry altogether. How do you see the intersection of modern technology, let's say like AI on the fitness and well-being industry as a whole? So the impact of AI on the industry entirely? Not necessarily just AI. You can talk about anything modern. Hmm. I, think, I think it's interesting because, uh, you know, from around... I think you could almost say that every 10 years, there was a big wave of changes in the technology industry. In the 2000s, there was the internet. In the 90s, it was probably the telecoms industry getting up to speed to allow the internet to exist in the 2000s. 
to then allow the iPhone to have the value it has today or the smartphone in general. But the idea that you have internet access and the internet has enough content and value to make something like the iPhone valuable to the extent that you can then build services on top in the 2010 era. Um, so, you know, Uber, Airbnb, and all these devices, uh, sorry, these apps that were built on top of the devices to now, uh, or like a couple of years ago. And I think AI for me is sort of the, the same sort of game changer platform or tool that for another decade will allow companies to build new use cases either completely from scratch or existing startups from the last 10 years. And I think, you know, there's been a lot more companies st starting and being successful in different industries than before. So I think it's, it's definitely diversifying and the market is sort of like segmenting a bit more and you have actors that do really well. We might see some consolidation from big players, like people who have a lot of data because AI is really about data. So the more data you have, the more you can achieve outcomes for your customers that you previously couldn't do uh, in a way that's super accurate and, and engaging and useful. For startups, I think there's an opportunity to take any sort of tool, that's what I see as the most valuable, that hasn't changed in the last, in more than 10 years. So not something that has changed in the last 10 years, but something that would have maybe not changed in the last 20 years, or not that much. Something that's really out of date and to say it's probably not changed because software or mobile wasn't the platform or the tool that was going to disrupt that in industry and change it. Um, but there's some of these uh, product services and problems that can be addressed with AI today in a way that is disruptive, that will completely change the game for the end users. And I think that's where there's, there's more of a... Uh, the focus for all of the entrepreneurs that are starting. For us at Peak, it's typically the idea that, you know, the platform that allows coaches and athletes or everyday athletes to work together on their training is so outdated. There's, there's just nothing uh, here has really changed fundamentally in the last 20 years. There's so many opportunities with AI to make a lot of the complexity around sports science, around supplements, around data, uh, super simple. To the extent, and I think, you know, one of the things I've done leading to Peak was to build an AI coach that's completely independent. There's problems in that that are related to the consumer's perception. But the tool itself, if you, if you put the same coach in the hands of a, co of a real coach, it was amazing to see how much they can do. And I think what changes dramatically is what a coach can do, regardless of the experience and knowledge that they have. Sure, like the best coaches, like the top one or 5%, will always be like able to do so much more. But the same way any developer today can use ChatGPT or Copilot to write more code, you can or write more code and like be more accurate and have less bugs from the get-go. You can do the same thing for a coach that's junior, like maybe just had a certification and can now operate with all the knowledge in the world contextualized to the client that they're working with. And I think that's extremely powerful, the same way it's like allowing devs that have a little experience to become 10x devs almost. You can imagine the same thing for coaches. Junior so, coach uses a, so a tool. So I might reach to a position, for an example, I would, you seen those humane pin? Yeah. So yeah. you might reach to a position, I would put, let's say a pin 
and I will show it, let's say, the supplement that I have, and it will tell me if, if it recommends it for me or it's not, or I may reach a position if I'm doing, let's say, a specific workout. It tracks, let's say, with my watch or a certain watch, let's say my heartbeat, and it tells me to pace down or increase the pace on its own. Yeah. So when you say about an artificial coach, so it means like I have like a tool or some kind of like an instrument for me to get moving, but without the intervention of a person and more accurately. The long-term idea is probably to get there, yes, to get to having the option of choosing between the completely AI-driven coach that's extremely good, but I don't believe that we have enough data and I don't believe that the psychology of all of the people right now who are who have disposable income are between, let's say, 22 and 50 that are physically active are interested in using uh, an AI-only tool because ultimately what the coach provides is accountability. And that's inherently social. You can try and replicate a lot of the mechanisms behind that. But if you look in the last 10 years of apps, there's been a cemetery of habit tracking apps that haven't really taken off. Everyone is trying again and again and again. It just doesn't take off. I don't think AI is typically going to fix that problem because the accountability and all the complexity behind it is not necessarily something that AI does really well for that specific reason of this generation that's able to pay for this type of product today is doesn't have a relationship with the AI that's the same as a human. I think that might change because we've seen the behaviors of different generations be completely different with different tools like social media and so on. So I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years, the teenager today that's 15 and turns 25 has graduated, started working, has disposable income, has a completely different relationship with AI. They might be you know, completely used to chatting with an AI that also has a, is connected to an app that provides a UI that serves certain problems. And I think that that problem might change. But that means that the time to market for any of these ideas is not now, it's in 10 years. So like, if you want to start a bit early, you start in seven to eight years. Um, today, if you put the same thing you were describing in the hands of the coach, they can do so much more because they can adjust your training automatically. So almost proactively, the monitoring uh, software will look at the data and identify how you can improve specific areas of your health and training. It will notify the coach. The coach will just review the suggested updates, make some changes, send that to you. And in no time, literally in in a couple of minutes uh, after a workout, you could get an update from your coach that says, you've overtrained today. The results were great, like you matched the distance, the, the pace and so on, but we should probably uh, cancel the run from tomorrow and make sure that you get enough recovery because we've seen that you were already not like at the peak today. And so we want to make sure that you have enough recovery before the next one. And so that update is automatic. It also decides what's the next type of workout we're going to do. Are we going to you know, do something lighter? Are we going to go again for something quite heavy so we can maintain uh, our progress on certain metrics? And the whole workflow that used to take hours for our coaches at SPAN, where they literally look at the dashboard, a bunch of metrics that were summarized across three months, last week, last day, or last three days, and then a bunch of charts to look at the trends. This entire complexity is literally five to six bullet points of uh, data points that are analyzed by the AI. 
So I'm going to move to a different question, which is with your background as a software engineer at Microsoft, how has your technical expertise influenced your approach to product development on all products you've taken part of? That's an interesting question. Um, I feel like for a long time, I didn't know. When I was in university and studying computer science, I had not explored the idea of entrepreneurship at all. I, I don't know why, but for some reason, I kept saying, I want to start something. Like I know that I will probably start a company at some point. Like I won't stay in a job forever, but I didn't consider it at the time. I think maybe for the wrong reasons or what people have told me, I thought you can't start a company right away. You have to go into tech and, you know, or in a big job and sort of learn the deep technical skills you need to then have the legitimacy in some ways to build a startup on your, your own. Um, and I was obviously wrong. I think a lot of people have proven that. A lot of people who started, you know, literally right after university went to YC and started a billion dollar company. It's, it's massive now. So there's plenty of, uh, of examples that, that, that was wrong. Um, so when I was in university, I was going really deep into the most challenging technical problems because that's where I, I found the, you know, again, like this ability to find a way to continuously improve, to be challenged by some of the smartest people in my class and, and stuff like that. So I went from, like, I'm super, super interested in video games, building a video game, trying to sort of push the limits of what you can do with your average graphics card to display like really uh, long or complex landscapes uh, and build those. Um, that was before Unreal Engine and, and all of that. To that's not challenging enough. So I went into embedded systems, how you write software for you know anything that's not really a computer or a phone or consider a phone an embedded system, but planes, um, aerospace. We wrote software for satellite communications, um, a bunch of projects like that to building your own kernel and basically like bootstrapping uh, a computer from scratch, uh, writing um, everything. Um, in C, like really learning about assembly language and doing all of these things. And I went really deep into that. I I went to Stanford and again, like did the same thing in specifically applied to security um, and looking at, at the time, how Google and Apple back in 2010 could, or 2012 actually, could improve um, how quickly they assess apps that go on the stalls in terms of security um, threats, potentially, that the app um, could have for the end user. So what could they steal data on the phone? And do they, have, do they use um, you know, APIs that they shouldn't be using that are sort of internal APIs and things like that? So that was super interesting. But I realized really quickly in my first two years at Microsoft that first, I wasn't uh, going to become the best software engineer. I, I was you know, super interested in specific areas and going deep on them. And I think I was probably good at what I was doing, but I wasn't feeling challenged by that anymore. I felt like coding was almost automated for me. It's like, I just get into the flow and have a, something and I do it. But when I received the task from a manager or the rest of my team after the Scrum meeting, I didn't feel the same passion, enthusiasm, and like the ability to really get in flow and build stuff as when it was my own ideas. And I got the opportunity to, to do a program in London that essentially pays you for three months and you try and start a company with a bunch of other small people. And that was really um, like the opener for me. It was like, 
wow, you can do this. People can pay you. You can then try and raise money and it's your own idea. And you have someone who's equally as invested in that idea as you, and you can make it into a company. That's just amazing. And so that's sort of how I got into that and how the transition happened for me and how I value the, the technical abilities I have now. I think it allows me to sort of explore any problem to evaluate other companies too. Although that's not something that I necessarily do, like I'm not an investor or, or anything like that. Um, but I feel like I can help a lot of my friends who are founders on different problems, uh, including how to assess what type of um, what type of technology, how deep they want to build something to prove that there is value in an idea that they have. So how do you validate it? in a way that's extremely efficient. In some ways, that's the opposite of what I used to do. I used to go really deep on one thing and build something really so complex that most people wouldn't care. Uh, well, like only a small group of people. And I've, my mindset has, has completely shifted to how can I build like in the laziest possible way something that will be in the, front, uh, in the forefront of the product. I get it in the hands of a user and I see how they use it. I use my analytics, I get on a call with them, I understand how they're using it, what the problems are, if that's even like solving the problem, if it's not that just crap everything, and that's the reason why you wanna be super lean and efficient. Uh, otherwise you sort of keep building, keep iterating on that. And so yeah, both for my own projects and people I'm helping um, here and there, I feel like it's really useful to have that ability to have gone deep once and to sort of know how far you can go different based on different ideas. Obviously, you know, if I was building a, a foundational AI model company today, I would need to have a completely different assessment to, you know, how deep you need to go to build something that's truly differentiated, um, whether it's like purely technical performance or whether it's something that's sort of applying transformers, for example, to biology um, or any other problem. So when you're in a in a big corp, you're like a small fish in a big pond compared when you do your own thing, you're a big fish in a small pond kind of thing. A hundred percent. And I think it's, it's terrible to be the small fish. Uh, I mean, obviously you can play a sort of a, a lot of games to make sure that the people above you notice how good you are and then, you know, move up the ranks, but that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily correlate with learning more skills, uh, speaking to customers, doing everything end-to-end, -end, working with a team and building that. In a lot of big companies, it, it just doesn't align. Like those two things can be completely different. And there's people who are great at just playing that game. Um, there's more recent startup companies where I think that's still the case even at scale or it's better maybe than in traditional and older companies. But um, I think that's, that's part of culture. That's, that's the reason why culture is so important, I think. Um, it's like to, to create a path, like Google created the first type of company where you can become more senior year after year without going to management. You can like just become a senior software engineer principal and so on and so on until you become like distinguished and you're at the top of the top as an engineer who's contributing individually, but at a level that's just incredible. And that's the kind of culture that changes everything you know, in a situation like this. So I didn't have uh, the feeling that I was going to enjoy playing that game for very long. And 
Microsoft was also going through a lot of cultural changes at the time, which were great. I think the end result is just amazing. The performance of that company is, you know, in the stock market is just incredible. And I think um, going through the changes as they were happening was a terrible experience, probably worse for a lot of people because it meant, you know, the VP or your manager or a bunch of people between you and like the VP of your division were probably going to get fired every six to 12 months. And it meant that everything changes. Like you're working on something, literally they call you up in a room and you know, the project is done and you start on something else uh, the next day. That's when you invested, you know, your thinking time to architecture something, to release it, to grow it to, you know, from zero to a hundred thousand customers. And then, you know, you just like have no say in that or I think, yeah, I think that's also the point. It's like, it's, it's not, um, the kind of decision that's made in a way that's uh, enlightening the rest of the company on why that decision was made is more unilateral with no information provided to the direct reports. I think that was a big problem for me and biggest reason why I left after the third or fourth time, I think it happened to me that the project was cut or you know they, they were moving the office or something like that. I just said, okay, no more. I'm, I'm moving on to do something else. I have a rule about joining a big company after 30 and I would have to span before I become 30 to do whatever I want. If I screwed something, I would learn from it. And then at 30, I re I realized, okay, is this thing that I created have brought any, let's say numbers or impact or anything that's measurable, I'll continue with it. If not, I'll consider thinking of going to, towards a big corporation. That's my thesis of how I see it because let's say I'm 26, I have till 30, so there's four years. Yeah. So I can mess around, I can create, let's say, a startup, I can make a company, I could start whatever I want, and I would feel like it's guilt-free, but I'm learning. 100%. When I reach and when I reach at 30, I will come up and say, like, okay, is this thing that I've built is making sense? Does it make, let's say, a decent amount of profit? Is it making any impact or it's doing anything? If yes, I'll continue with it and that's it. Like I've taken the decision. If not, that means I did my best. I've tried what I have to do. I'll go towards a big corporation just to settle. That's my thesis of how I see it. hundred percent. I think it's completely right because I think the, the opposite of that is I don't think everyone is made for entrepreneurship, but there's obviously an opportunity cost maybe when it's that easy in our world today to not try it when you're young and then say, well, actually it's not for me. So I'm just going to go back to find a job or, or even maybe those skills are like super useful and I just realized I'm maybe not the person to be CEO or I'm just going to be one of the co-founding team members or one of the first employees, which, you know, like if you look at how much money people made at Facebook, for example, I think it's better to be like between employee 50 and 100. That's where you make most money for the, the amount of work you do uh, or like the, the risk and the, the stress you take at least. Um, you know, not that they didn't take any risk or they didn't have the stress, but it's just like compared to employee number three, it's just completely different. Um, so yeah, I think I think it, it's great that a lot more people can try it. And uh, I think it does teach you skills for other parts of your life even that are incredibly useful. So I'm going to move to a different question, which is as a product associate at Techstars, you had the opportunity to work closely with early stage startups. What advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs who are looking to build, let's say, a successful product? Since you have an extended experience in fitness and health and the wellness industry, you can 
talk about this or we can branch about let's say any kind of product if you want to yeah um i think if you have i think regardless uh whether you have an idea or you just know that you want to try and start something the most important thing is to build intuition around a, a specific problem that people have uh, so it could be something you have and that's your int initial intuition that jump starts uh, the whole process or you don't have it maybe a friend has it or you hear about something and then the goal is to do as much research as possible to start building that intuition i think the goal is almost to being able to be in a state where you absorb so much that you become your customer you may not have the problem yourself but you're you're speaking so much to them that you start to become like them, to be as annoyed uh, having that problem as them. Uh, when you get to that stage, I think it becomes a lot easier to do things. It's, it means you have a very strong understanding of the problem. Regardless of what the solution is, you're going to figure out you know, how, to, how to do it. If you have only a surface level understanding of the problem, you're often going to try to pivot or to change your product or even worse to build a product for a year and not test it with your user realize that it was the wrong product and then you know there's just no exit at this point you just you sort of focus on it again and again and again and you think oh maybe there's a way to do that or maybe we can pivot to this and it's just never the, the right outcome and you know the silicon value or the yc mantra on this is just like build something that people want so it means understanding the problem and then shipping something to them as quickly as possible use your intuition for that to sort of kickstart what you're going to build and and how you understand that problem if you don't have it build that intuition and as soon as you have it figure out how you can build a solution also try and figure out something that's a bit more clever than whatever already exists um so you know, it's a classic thing of if there's a a new tool like AI that comes into the game, maybe you could use the AI to make a horse faster by, you know, like adding some technology that monitors their performance and helps them achieve some movements that makes the horse faster. Or you could build a car that completely self-driving and like is autonomous and so on. And so it's the, the same analogy uh, from Ford where you could build something, improve something that's existing, or you could solve the same problem, but in a way that's just dramatically different. I think a lot of people do that parallel for Tesla as well, but they say it's a car company. I think you can all agree now that it's, it's not only a car company anymore. It's doing cars, it's also doing robots, it's doing like AI models that apparently could be reused for different aspects of different products. It's you know, it's a completely different way of seeing how you're solving the problem and how you become more of a platform uh, as you as you build your product and, and you make it even better for your users. Um, and like the last thing I would say is that on that, the most the hardest part of the entrepreneur's job is to do all of this well, but you also have a vision. To also say. Yes, we're doing all these things. It's very scrappy. We're speaking to customers, we're building what they want and all this. And you need to do this and you need to be extremely diligent at doing this. But you also need to be able to sort of like articulate how do th does this become big? You know, is it something for 100 people in a country? Is it like a thousand? Is it a million? Can it get as big 
uh, as $100 million of revenue annually. Uh, and if that's the case, like, where do I find the users? You know, is it really possible? Because often if you have that vision, you sort of articulate it in your head, it's not something you come up on like two hours of work on a Notion page where you, you dump everything. It takes a while. It takes some iterations and thinking. It takes speaking with the customers and sort of coming back to what could be on the horizon um, and how you sort of get to that really big path where your company become, becomes huge over time. Um, that's the part that's really hard. It's, it's sort of wrestling with these two things. It's almost as if you're schizophrenic and you know, on one side you're like, oh yeah, super big vision, ambitious, long-term. At the same time, like you need to be down to earth and realistic about today and what you're doing. But doesn't it crushes your motivation to work? So let's say, for example, I let's say I put this perspective of I'm going to create a company that's going to have 100,000 daily users, and I'm going to, let's say, make a million dollars. And assuming the fact that I built the product and I'm not getting those numbers, and I've been doing it, let's say, for three years, as an example, and I reach a position like, oh, okay, I'm not reaching to my expectations, so this is a failure. But in reality, it might be actually a very decent business that's working, but we doesn't align with your expectations. Yeah. Doesn't it just hinders my motivation to do the job? I agree. Yeah, and I think that that's why I think the the vision is not necessarily something that's entirely static. It's something that you use for different purposes, including raising money, motivating your team, attracting some great talents to join you and build with you. But it's not something that's completely static. Obviously, you're going to learn things. Those learnings, it's extremely important to react to them quickly, to memorize them, to like frame why they are so important for the direction of your company, to make sure that the entire team, co-founders and everyone is aware of these things and you agree on those as well, or like at least the co-founding team agrees on those, to move forward every time. And that sort of adjusts the path to your vision. So if it was 100,000 users initially, and you say, actually, you know, first the path was we want to get to 10,000 first, we did get to 10,000, but what we thought the path was to 100,000 is different than what we thought. And often it will be because, you know, un until you start focusing on that problem of like going 10x, basically, it, it first it takes a completely different mindset. And so you realize that what you thought would work initially is completely different from the reality. So how much effort it takes to get 1,000 customers to get to 10,000 is completely different from like, you can't just repeat the same thing and get to 100,000 it will take something completely different to get there. And so as a result, I think these things need to be adjusted and you need to be sort of like uh, optimistic that there is a path forward to be able to adjust these things over time and to get to, you know, at some point, 100,000 or a million over time. But yeah, the, the small learnings and how you you frame that um, whenever something is, is really a, a key turning point in the direction that you're taking is really important. Uh, at the beginning of Span, I didn't insist on, insist on this as much as I should have. I was really into writing. I often would write on Medium, but I don't think I necessarily try and, tried and shared um, the, the decision-making process with the team as much um, as I should have. Towards the end, it was the opposite. I was literally, every time we spoke to like 100 customers over a month or two, and we had um, you know, huge understanding that had changed on specific um, area. I was writing an entire memo, 
not, not something that's really long. I mean, it often didn't need to be very long, but something like, like maybe 100 lines, summarizing everything we've learned, making sure everyone is aware of that, um, making sure that my co-founder and I were really aligned on these things. Um, and that was really useful. It's also really useful for you to come back. Like, I love having those memos now that I'm working on something different, going back to them, like, oh, what structure did I use? How did I think about the psychology of these consumers? Um, what sort of like product strategy did we implement and why? And, you know, all these things. So it's, it's also incredibly useful to have that uh, as a reference. So I'm going to move to a different question, which is, will the rise of wearable health and fitness tracking devices, privacy and data security became a big consideration that cannot be ignored or taken lightly. How would you approach these concerns to ensure the user trusts your product and their data is safely handled? Mostly, let's say the, I want to target, let's say, security in general, and we can extend towards, let's say, certain regulations like in the EU. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, that's, that's also like one of the things that doesn't necessarily align with how people build, um, at the early stages of, of, of a startup. So you tend to not pay attention to, to security, to, uh, GDPR and all the regulations because you're, you're too small. You don't have the time and, and all these things, but actually I think the responsibility of the founders is to spend some time on these things when they are, uh, you know, so on the regulatory side, when it's required. So if you are selling to customers in the EU or in California to know what regulatory bodies um, will ask you for information, um, to know what that is, to file with them if needed. So GDPR, if you're selling to EU customers, you have to register in your country uh, with the ICO. Uh, once you've done that, um, there's obviously a number of things you need to do internally. Now there's actually some great platforms that help you do the compliance. So you just sign up for them and they take you through the checklist. Um, how, you know, if it's every year, it takes you through the, the checklist every year. You make sure that your team is doing what we need, that the software is also compliant and all of these things. Um, so there's great ways to do that. And then there's, le, there's the other side, which is the, the responsibility you have towards your customers, irrespective of the regulatory entity. Protect that data, make sure it's not lost, it's not stolen. So I think here is just making sure that whoever you work with for this, internal engineers, agencies, yourself, you're always uh, asking the right people who have experience or you take your own experience to use best practices. Don't try and innovate on like using a new type of database when you're building a consumer product like, a, like what, I, what I was building or like Uber or something like this. You don't need to innovate on these things. You use the thing that has the best security out of the box on AWS or Google Cloud or whatever platform you use. Because as soon as you try to innovate on something that's not core to your business, you're going to spend a lot more time than you need uh, on developing it, maintaining it, and making sure that you know there's no security flows. And so as much of these security features you can get out of the box uh, as possible is always a great idea. Um, then there's obviously the internet-facing software you build, APIs, um, uh, web clients, mobile clients, and, and all of this. I think there on the mobile side, it's fairly easy because on the health side, a lot of the platforms offer uh, features for you to store the data locally uh, in a safe way. So even someone literally stole your phone, your iPhone today, and uh, the data from third-party app was stored inside. If the phone is locked, they can't access it. The chip is literally locked. 
So, you know, a lot of the features that come for free, you just have to use that. Don't store it in a, like, uh, you know, MySQL data database locally or SQLite. Just, just use those features because they're, they're safe by design. On the API side, I think it's a lot harder. Um, you're exposed to the internet. Um, you know, whatever you do is going to be according to best practices. Again, if you can use libraries that are open source and have been validated uh, to provide some levels of security, um, you know, don't, re don't rewrite your own OAuth flow. Just reuse the best libraries that have been like tested uh, for these things. But then even outside of that, like you need to sort of uh, review that process as often as possible. Um, it's not something you can do very quickly because at the beginning you may have like one engineer. But I think actually if you have like friends or people who are in the industry and can just help you, like, can you review this bit of code and, and tell us if we're doing anything wrong? That's often useful. Um, and, and one exercise that could be useful also over time is as you bring on more engineers, get them to review some of the, the, the pieces of software that maybe are the most dangerous from a security perspective. And then outside of that, like behind everything that's internet facing, you know, if you use tools from Google Cloud, AWS, I think often you're, you're fairly safe. And the last part is completely different. It's more the privacy. How do you articulate your customers of what you're doing with their data? especially when you are like a health, wellness, fitness product, mostly health actually, when you have like heart rate, maybe genetics data or API access to genetic data and things like that. I think one of the things that um, is important is obviously consent up front. They know that they are consenting to sharing the data with you. Um, I feel like for a lot of the different types of data, there's now platforms, APIs or or APIs that sort of like help you get the data out. But what I prefer is the APIs that store the data on your behalf in a compliant way. So that's, that's like a huge time saver when you're starting. Um, there's a couple of API companies that do that for wearable devices. Literally, it's like use their APIs unified, implements all the OAuth flows to connect to Apple, or not Apple, but uh, uh, Aura, Whoop, and all the other companies. They store the data in a HIPAA compliant way, GDPR as well. They do all of that for you, and you just query the data when you need it for presenting the data to your user or making calculations and pre presenting it to the user on the fly. So you don't actually store that data on your side. Or if it's like if it's cached, it's only for a short amount of time and then disappears. Um, and so I think that's actually a great way at the beginning to not have to build something complex from that perspective and make sure that the data is is safe essentially. And a great way to also say to your users, you're not storing their data. And often that's a big plus when you're starting that, you know, you'll start up with one person or two maybe. Um, so nobody's going to trust that you have the engineering capacity to be super safe. Uh, but if you're telling them, oh, we use this provider and these guys are like, you know, top of the top, then it's a great reassurance for customers that they can connect their wearable and give you access to their health data. Um, with things like genetic data, I think it's almost part of the policy of 23andMe and other platforms that you really can't store the data on your side. Um, now obviously, that will vary based on the, 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 the APIs, but most of the time, you, you're not supposed to store the data on your side. So you sort of like read what you want to make an assessment and provide some sort of insights that you derive from the raw data. You present that to your user. You can store that inside itself, but obviously, you're supposed to do that in a safe way. But the raw data, your genes, uh, mutations, you don't have to necessarily uh, store that to to use that with your users. So I think that's that's uh, sometimes a requirement, but often something that gets you 
out of uh, doing things that are unsafe and as a result, uh, potentially um, either exposing the data from your users to uh, breaches or simply like, you know, not knowing where the data is stored and not being able to necessarily uh, flush it when customers didn't want to delete their accounts and everything that you do for GDPR and then the, the data act in California. So yeah, number of things uh, on different fronts. I had someone previously on the podcast who works for an authentication service, which is the price that you pay for rolling your own auth is more expensive than using a service. Because the price that you pay on a later stage when you get breached costs more than just paying for the service from the beginning. Yeah. No, exactly. I think you know it's, it, the, the 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 cost can be so high that your company can die as a result, and it's not something that's necessarily like mission critical, but it is extremely important to do well, and it would be a shame for your company to die as a result, essentially. Um, and and I think you know it must happen. Now, I'm going to move to a different question, which is from your extended experience, what are the, some of the most misconception or myths surrounding sleep or fitness products that people think of and how you tackle them? So let's give you one. One time I was sitting and my Apple Watch actually registered an unusual cardiac activity before I actually felt it. And then I had to be hospitalized. And what the fun part about this is that the watch on its own did call the SOS number. Okay. an emergency contract on its own. Yeah. And, 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 and it just registered, let's say, an unusual cardiac activity. It sends an SOS and it calls someone. And I didn't expect this kind of thing to happen. Yeah. Was it, was it right in the end? Yeah, it was right. Mm, interesting. I think that's one of the things that as much as we talk about the Apple Watch being great for fitness and, and all these things, one of the things that they're really uh, excellent at is this specific kind of feature, like the detection of uh, atrial fibrillation and, and now a lot more things. The fact that they have like uh, a two-lead ECG that normally that's the thing you get in hospital when they put all of the patches on you uh, with like five or seven leads. You can get that on an Apple Watch uh, to like a level of accuracy that's deemed as good as it gets basically by the FDA for two-lead ECG. It's just amazing. Um, and yeah, I think these features are, are really important in some ways. It's different from what we focused on, what, um, what I'm focused on now, or like what I like to do with consumer products for this specific vertical of health and fitness, because it's purely prevention. I think this is like on the screening side. So it's still part of the, for me, the, the monitoring of traditional healthcare, making sure you can detect things as early as you can, but it's, it's signals or problems that are already there in some ways that you could detect. Um, so th that's, that's one. And then there's obviously a lot of companies doing uh, preventative MRI scans, and they are hopefully that they're planning to sort of innovate on the MRI machines themselves, or like at least start using more, start using cheaper MRI machines for a purpose that's slightly different. And then over time, maybe start using the portable ones. And you know, may, as a result of this use, make MRI machines maybe cheaper. Uh, over time. So this is something that can really help on the, the screening and monitoring side of traditional healthcare. Um, not something I know a lot about necessarily, or like that I spent a lot about uh, thinking, but 
my wife is a doctor, so I do think about these things a lot as well. How do you approach designing intuitive and user-friendly interfaces for sleep and wellness and fitness products that integrates with people's life easily? So let's say, would you do multiple revisions regarding the design of the product? Or is it like you do the product and you realize, okay, this is it. Or I, I have to redo the exact same design or re or re-enhance the design. It can be on a software level or on a physical level. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think ultimately you need to think about how your user will interact with your product. And that sort of defines what pieces of the software need to be changed to get the best possible result uh, at the moment they interact with the, with the product. So you know whether it's hardware, physical hardware, or just an app or things like that. If, for example, I spend a lot of time at Eight Sleep um, thinking about um, the design of the data report. How do we take the tracking data from your sleep on the mattress, um, not necessarily out of the product? Like there was a, an engineering team that was doing this on the back end extremely well. Um, not necessarily on the like how do you synchronize the data to with the, the client and, and display it, but really on the UI side or user experience in general. One of the biggest things, what was really interesting is that Sleep had been operating for three to four years with that thermal regulation product that also measures your sleep. And the audience that they had were mostly biohackers, people that were super into data, like, before then, there was probably no other product to track your sleep. And so it was a sort of a revolution, something really new. These guys knew everything about the numbers that were displayed on the app. So, you know, knowing HR, HRV, uh, deep sleep, and so on, and having charts that display the raw data across multiple weeks or the last night, that was, that was perfect for them. That, that's what they wanted. The problem is when I joined and I was working on this in 2022, most of the new customers, which was the majority, because if you think about it, they sold a, li- a small number, they sold more and more over time. So the bulk of the users, especially on the new products, uh, were completely different. They were like sort of everyday health conscious people. So definitely not the average user, but not the biohacker either. They didn't have that initial education about the metrics, what they meant, what's good, what's bad, like is a 53 BPM heart rate, is that good or is it bad? Does it depend on my age, on my weight, on my height, on any of these things? So they had no idea. The, that, that learning was not something that the company was necessarily aware of. It's, it was more that uh, we knew that the app was quite complex and had a number of problems. We had some indicators like churn showing that. And so we spoke to a lot of customers to really understand, especially in the new ones, how they felt about that specific feature, how the report was displaying the data to them. We had an incredible designer who was working with me on like making many iterations. We started from the calls with the customer to understand like when, like not even speaking about the data, when do you open the app? Do you open the app in the morning as soon as you wake up? Turns out that most people didn't have time to do that. So they opened it when they get to the office. Uh, their lunch or their coffee break at 10 a.m., for example. And they opened it for like maybe 30, 45 seconds to just like scroll through and figure out very quickly what they need to get. And so most important problem was designed for such a small amount of time, designed for 
displaying the kind of data they want, they're interested in. So that might vary from user to user, or there might be a way to present it in a way that's easy to navigate for the average person and gets them what they want to see. But it was certainly not a list of charts with raw data and no marker of what's good, like what the good range is or or the trend is over time. So we, we completely revamped the thing. Our designer was great because she was able to work with me on a lot of iterations and um, you know displaying the data in a way that's more useful. So the endpoint was essentially we were hiding the complexity of long-term trends and so on and just displaying last night. This is how you slept. This is how your health was trending and showing what's good and bad with uh, visuals. So colors, uh, arrows that, go, that show you up and down, um, big numbers that clarify what the unit is for each of these things and will help you also educate you over time. And then an overall score that obviously combines some aspects of this and describes what's good in terms of your routine. Did you go to sleep at the same time? Uh, did you wake up at the same time? Is your consistency good? But also the output, the raw sleep state from last night. Um, so how much recovery, sleep, deep, and, and REM did you get, and so on. So that was, um, that was a really good experience. I think a really good use case of like, how do you go from initial feedback that users are not satisfied, or even like metrics, like engagement, showing that people use the buy the product, and then they, over time, stop using this particular feature. Either you need to say like, oh, yeah, it's just not that important, so we just get rid of it. Um, or if it is important, or if you're selling a subscription that says this is a, a feature that's important uh, as part of the subscription, so it's one of the reasons people sign up for it, then you need to sort of like focus on on improving it. And I think the best way is just start speaking to these people, understand what's different from what you currently have, and then you just work your way from there, understanding uh, when when they are able to use that feature and what context in their lifestyle completely ignore what you currently have and the data you you your hardware is capable of doing we even removed some of the metrics that the hardware was doing because most people were confused by them we we couldn't necessarily prove that they were accurate or find scientific data that showed us this is a good range and a bad range for these metrics they're just not researched um so we decided to remove some of them as a result but if let's say for example you made the design of the application more user-friendly and you had, let's say, this is your sleep at night and this is your score. Doesn't, let's say, cause a certain level of anxiety or let's say a certain negative view that I'm poorly under, let's say I'm poorly achieving certain things so I need to improve it, but let's say I don't know how to improve it so I get anxious about getting a low score. So, for example, let's say fitness applications, they tell you, let's say on my Apple Watch, you would send me a notification like, oh, uh, today you have, let's say, 400 calories and you have to finish them by the end of the day. And if you yeah. don't, you feel this anxious, like you're going to break your streak, for example. Yeah. I think if it's just the, the streak mechanism, it's not too bad because in some ways that's the goal is to keep you accountable in a way that's not like human or social driven. Um, and it's just to make you take that action that in theory will correlate with better health or improvement. When it's more like the you're judging the output, like your heart rate or your your sleep in a way that like the aspects of your sleep that you can't control directly, like you can't control the duration of your sleep all the time. Sometimes, you know, it's what you can do between dinner and, and going to work in the morning. So 
I think you have to take into all, into account all of these things when you're designing. But then there's also, a, I think to your point on the anxiety, there's also a group of people who don't want to see the data. Um, they So it's, it's not a, from my experience at least, it's not a huge portion of the people who purchase those devices. So it could be that the people who are aware that they are just not interested in data have that underlying understanding that they'll probably have more anxiety by using the Apple Watch every day or the Oura Ring on their sleep and, and so on. So I think what you could do is, because there's a small number of these users, is just offer an option to disable the data or to focus on the data points that are long-term trends or simply to not show the data and only send them a report every month. Because if it's like a long-term monthly average, it still gives you information about the trends, but um, doesn't necessarily create as much anxiety in terms of, uh, oh, it's changed compared to yesterday. Is that good or bad? Am I like having a heart attack or like something else really bad? If you can't get there and provide that kind of data, I think obviously Apple can, and they're putting a lot of work in doing this, but most of the startups are building new products in this area can't. And then I think the last part was it's not necessarily the like the showing the data and so on, but it's some people just have the anxiety about um, seeing variations on a day basis or monthly basis. And that's fine if you're able to design the user experience so that they can hide the data or get it at certain intervals. But then there's obviously the the most important part, which you mentioned around not knowing what to do. Like if you don't know what to do to improve that thing, you have to be super good at the insights in the variations and the correlations maybe with other things to provide value just with software or with software that just focuses on the data. So for example, if you take into account the workouts on the Apple Watch and the heart rate, and you correlate these two things and then you have a threshold and when it varies more than that threshold, you say, oh, your heart rate is uh, much higher today because you probably over-exercised. So you have you know, this sort of insights you can produce. That's the thing that sort of, for me, can alleviate that anxiety of I don't know how to improve that specific one. But I think ultimately what we need to get that none of these variables are doing is actions, give you recommendations, heuristic from the science that tell you if you have a heart rate that's slightly high, like in the okay range for your age, and it needs to be in the optimal range, what are the three things I can do over the next six months to reduce it. Not everyone will want to do these things, but ultimately we have the knowledge now. Um, and I think we, we're just not distributing that in those apps specifically. So you just get the raw data with some surface level insights on variations and correlations, but that's, that's where it stops. Um, I think maybe the scalability of these things is, is hard. And I think that's what uh, becomes interesting, you know, became interesting in the last 18 months where AI can provide those. I'm sure, 100% sure that Aura Whoop has already released a, an AI-based coach that looks at the data and can answer your questions. The question is, when does it become proactive? Um, and it helps you tell different things. For me, out of the, all the devices I've seen, I think Aura is the best at that because they just give you a score at the top of the home screen. And below that, they have a bit of text that's not AI, it's just a manual algorithm, but it changes almost every day. And it's not 100% accurate, 
but I want to say 80 to 90% of the time, it will give me some insights that's actionable and that's valid. Like I agree with what it's saying in terms of I feel worse or I feel like I've not trained maybe as much physically as I could in the last three days and I should pick up more training that day. Um, and I think I think it's getting as close as you can to something that is just one number with an insight. It, if you don't want to deep dive into the rest of the data, data is fine. It's their job and they've done it well in terms of translating that into something you can do on that day. And maybe once a week, you want to browse the entire data for the week and figure out what happened. So I'm going to move to a completely different question, which is what has been the most rewarding aspect of your work and what is something you're proud of? Uh, really good question. Two things. Um, I think the first one is customers. Um, at Span, we had people every week uh, realizing incredible achievements, um, like running their first marathon and like achieving something like three hours and a half, where they didn't, they they literally had not run before, uh, and all the preparation work that led to that, that was incredibly holistic, take, took into account their nutrition, their sleep, and all of that. Um, and, and being able to showcase that that's useful. Like you can literally achieve great things in terms of performance and health if you take that approach. That was amazing. And we had those like literally every week. The, the team was like really um, uh, you know, fueled by these things, these comments that the coaches rely, relate to the, the rest of the team uh, every week on that. We also shared that with all of our customers on a newsletter. Because I think it's like it showcases uh, how much people are doing with your product and gets the other ones excited about using certain aspects of your, your product and your features. Um, and then the second part of that, which is sort of related, it's getting a team of people who are incredibly passionate about the problem and and the solutions around that, but also the working with customers directly and making sure that they um, are seeing the improvements that that they want to see. Um, like working together and seeing that for your customers, both on like how the team work together and the results for your customer. This was probably the most rewarding part of all of this. And do you consider yourself lucky with all your endeavors and achievements? Do you attribute your success to luck or is there is another element that helped in that? Um... It's obviously a lot of luck. Um, I don't. I don't think anyone can say there's zero luck. It's there's always luck. I think the question is more. There's this quote. I don't know who it's from, but it's like luck is when um, uh, it's when preparation meets opportunity. And I think when you work hard on these things, you try and learn as fast as you can uh, to go as deep as you can on certain problems that your users have and all of this. You're doing the work. You're preparing yourself for the opportunities that arise, whether it's like a big potential customer or like a corporate that gets 100 subscriptions for their employees or something like that. Uh, when you've done the work and you have proof points that, that gets you the, the meeting, that gets you in a room with data that's really convincing, compelling, and ultimately makes a sale. And so, you know, it's, you'd still need a bit of luck because that opportunity that meets the preparation. It doesn't happen just like that. Like you, you can hustle your way in, but ultimately you need a bit of luck. Like the person on the other side was like, 
it's the right day at the right time and they are, oh, I'm going to give a chance to that person, you know, actually respond to that LinkedIn message that's called and, and I don't know anything about them. So there's a little bit of that too. Um, you can sort of like, uh, you, you can force that luck in some ways by, by trying to build a network, making yourself known. And, you know, th there's a lot of things you can do to reduce the impact on luck on your success. Um, but ultimately, it still takes uh, always like for all of us, all of us founders, I think. Can you tell me about a time when you did something that worked out, but not for the reason that you thought it would work and something you thought it was good, but it didn't work out at all? I think the perfect example is the one uh, that we started with uh, about the founding story of Span. The naivety we had about the how you start exploring the specific problem that people have and who you sell to as a result. So our idea was these people needed the most, like it's our judgment that they needed the most because from a biological point of view, there's a signal that tells us they need this thing. They need this, this treatment, even if it's like a digital treatment at this point or lifestyle. The other side is the people who want it the most. And we thought these two things were the same. Basically, it's two different words. They mean different things. We thought they were exactly the same. That was the biggest mistake in terms of the direction because it could have saved us the six months of like figuring that out on a B2C side and then trying to pivot to B2B and then only realizing like because of COVID or like thanks to COVID that it wasn't necessarily the, the right thing to focus on and that all the customers we had that were using the product for free in that large group of people, some of them were willing to pay out of pocket for something that's slightly different and these people were different. And as soon as we figured out that, we could find more of them. And so that whole process, if we could have done that much faster, we would have learned a lot more. Super easy to see with, with hindsight. Ultimately, I think it's just a testament that if you can, like the startups that move uh, fast and, and, and try and come up with these learnings as quickly as possible, are just more likely to succeed because you pay the premium of like we used probably like it wasn't like 12 months it was probably eight months of runway for that where really we could have we could have gone and, and found that, that conclusion really quick what is something that everyone takes for granted or in a different way that you think it is inaccurate something that people take for granted or is inaccurate that you think it's inaccurate Um, I think a lot of these misconceptions have been sort of, uh, they've been squashed in the last uh, few years because there's so much content on how to build a startup and, and all of that. But I'm going to say, especially in 2024, that a lot of people still think that success in startups means raising money. And there's a lot of tools you can use, like hiring great people, raising money, uh, partnerships, many things to progress, to, to make progress ultimately for your customers or finding customers. But ultimately, like that's what fundraising is, is one of the tools in this sort of arsenal. It's a really powerful one, but it's only powerful if you know what you're doing. 
if you have like good idea, you don't need to have product market fit as in a product that people are already buying. And, you know, otherwise they, we wouldn't necessarily call that seed or pre-seed. We call that like already like the series A investments and so on. But I think even more in 2024 where funding is drying up or it's, it is, it's just a criteria to get funded is a little bit tougher, especially on first time founders. I think people need to figure out a way to be even leaner, like get to understanding the problem your customers have and figuring out the, the killer solution that gets you in their hands and ideally them getting them paying as quickly as possible. Um, and that's, that's the thing that uh, I think was already a misconception in the past that you need to raise money to be successful in startups. I think now there's even more counterexamples. Company like MailChimp, um, I think they barely, barely raised money. They started the product, they it worked, um, they launched it, they got paid customers, they raised a little bit of money from angel investors, never raised with a venture fund, like never did big $1 million round. And uh, obviously it became huge and was sold to Intuit a couple of years ago. Um, there's so many examples of companies like this now. Um, so in a situation like this, it's even more important because you're less likely to get funding. So if you're just like betting everything on whether you'll have that luck that we were talking about, and even if you do all the preparation that you'll be able to get in front of the right investor at the right time who's like willing to take that risk, um, in a in a context like in an economic context or like a VC landscape context where some of these VCs are now reevaluating how they take that risk based on the last ten years of investments, it's a really risky game to play for you. There's a huge opportunity cost to doing that, uh, and so I think like even more than ever, like focus on your customers who's paying, get them to pay as quickly as possible, and like if they're not. Ask yourself really hard questions about the business model. Any alternatives you can find out or whether it's time to figure out the different customer segment or even to pivot completely. From, I'm going to ask a different question, which is from three years ago till now, what is different about you then and now? Have you changed in how you deal with things? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I feel like, you know, uh, if I was... Me, uh, five years ago, looking at myself now and the reverse, uh, I'd be very surprised. I think there's a lot of aspects of my personality, my mindset, the things that I'm interested in that have changed. At the same time, I think at the core, not much has changed. Like I'm still interested in the same things um, and, and so on. In terms of like the like concrete um, changes, I think... First, like I became much better at communicating. Um, it's like, it's inevitable. You are the CEO, you are the person raising money in your co-founding team. You have to be a great communicator. And in some ways, like it took me a while to get better at that, but I think, you know, it's, it's something you have to, you have to learn. Same thing, you know, I was talking about communicating with external parties, but internally as well. How do you communicate with your team in a way that's like, really effective leadership? How do you com communicate that you and your co-founder have made a decision on the direction of the product? Because ultimately that's how it works. Like, yes, you're going to work with them, especially if they're like, the, the product team. But for the rest of the company, how do you inform everyone on why you made a decision, why it's important, what was the data behind it, or what led you to that conviction? 
it's really important to inform them and then also to forget about it and to say like, that's the direction we're taking. And by the way, I think the framework should always be, we don't really care if it's the right one. Like we have a strong conviction, we documented it. And the reason why it's important to do that is because you can always come back to it if um, you, know, you decide that, or you have data that sort of proves that that was wrong. But if you have the documentation, then it becomes a lot easier. There's aspects of your company, like in growth, if you don't do that for consumer product, uh, at least, I, I, there's just no way you can grow your product. Maybe you can get your 100 customers for something like Span, but you can't get your 1,000 or 10,000 definitely without being extremely rigorous about the decision you make, the experiments you're going to decide to run to be able to decide whether this initiative is leading you to get uh, the number of customers you were expecting, like let's say 500 customers from this channel using this specific technique or growth hack. Um, and if you don't have the discipline, you'll, you'll definitely never be able to grow your company. And you have to execute extremely um, diligently on these things too. So I always end the podcast with a mental health question. Have you ever faced burnout or imposter syndrome? And if you did, then what did you do to resolve towards them? Yeah, 100%. Uh, there's things that are related to startup life. Um, funny enough, like the startup journey of Span was pretty uh, tough when you look at it uh, with hindsight. But actually for me, like, I didn't feel like I was burning out or anything. I feel like I had a really good balance, had a great team. Um, and so I, I never had that problem at Span in that startup journey. There's obviously like ups and downs. I think that people are very uh, different on that. For, like for me, it's it's really what I love to do in some ways. Like it's not that I, I thrive on the downs, but it's the, the ups and downs that uh, make the journey so challenging and therefore rewarding for me. So I can't speak for other people. I think there's maybe like a threshold of people who are extremely affected by the downs. And in that case, like, I think it's probably better to preserve your mental health and to go to um, a company where things are just more stable and will put less pressure on that. I think it could be also like a moment of your life. Like I've definitely tried to start companies before with people who weren't necessarily like ready from that perspective and probably are now. Like they're probably in a much better place in terms of having family support or like everything that makes your external environment stable so you can really have a, you know, balance that out with the unstable part of, of startup life. So I think that's, that's pretty important. Uh, Post-sale, I think that was very difficult. I think, you know, your job is completely changing. You're first a, like final decision maker and you become an employee, essentially. Um, so that transition is really was really difficult. I think learning how to do that, learning how to communicate with a new team that's sort of integrating with yours, all of these aspects were were pretty hard. And I think lastly, I think I'd say that the last one that was pretty, uh, it, it sort of took a long time for me to realize it, but it was probably the impact of COVID. Had a, a lot of impact on, on all of us, really. But I feel like um, completely unrelated to startup life, uh, anxiety for some aspects of life have comple has completely uh, changed for me uh, in the last uh, three years. And so I've been working on, on that a lot. I think it's really important that you're able to identify that when you are a founder. I think for everyone, obviously, but I think if you are a founder, it's even more important that you tackle these uh, as early as possible. 
there's a lot of ways to get help, you know, I think, you know, just to give some ideas, uh, I've tried better help. There's a lot of platforms like this. Um, you know, I realized in the end, for example, that uh, I didn't really like therapy online. So I think doing it in person is probably better. Um, if you don't have the funds, depending on where you live, your healthcare system might have uh, options that are given to you for free or at least for some number of sessions. I think this, this is a really, really helpful tool. It's, um, you know, some people use um, startup coaches or life coaches in general. I think at that stage where it's really preventative, there's not much of a difference. It's just having someone who's completely a, a stranger in your life that you can sort of speak to to explain certain problems and and help in the end, like optimize how you're you're performing. And I think that's really important for founder because it, again, like it's sort of bringing you the stability in the rest of your life you need so that you can deal with the rest in, in the startup life. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. If you liked it, then feel free to watch our previous episodes and feel free to follow us on social media and rate us on your favorite podcast app of choice.